Welcome back to the Emerging Markets Podcast, the podcast where we explore issues around trade, economics, business, politics, regional relations in various emerging markets around the world. I'm Ben Kwan. The Emerging Markets Podcast is produced by PCOD Advisory Group. You can find us at www.pcodadvisors.co. That's P-E-Q-U-O-D advisors.co. Today's topic is British business in Iran. I'm joined today by Paul Wilson. Paul is the Director General of the British Iranian Chamber of Commerce based in London. And Paul is joining me to answer such questions as what is Instex and how does it operationalise? What are some of the key commercial and political risks with doing business in Iran? What are economic sanctions and how do they affect British business? And of course, what is the future for British-Iranian trade relations post-Brexit? So, good morning, Paul. Uh, Good morning, Ben. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. Well, Paul, why don't we begin with uh, you providing us a brief background on how you've come to the BICC and what you were doing in your career before. So, to start with, before joining BICC, I had just over 20 years with uh, the British PLC Delarue, best known for printing banknotes, but it also produces passports and driving licenses and so on. And uh, in that in that company, I had a number of roles which took me around the world um, at one point as the director of the banknote division, director of sales of the banknote division. Uh, and that involved dealing with not only with central banks around the world, but also uh, assessing the political situations to see if there were any problems emerging in our trade with those uh, countries. And latterly, I was the director of government relations, which meant that my role was to liaise with the British government, uh, where there might be issues, for instance, uh, on sanctions or on uh, Delarue's own work with the British government, which at that time involved involved supplying things like the emergency passports to the Foreign Office and the Bank of England sterling. So um, there were... Earlier times when I dipped in and out of that sort of thing. Prior to my time at Delarue, I was with the Foreign Office. I had eight years there on various desks in London and then two years in Pakistan, the um, High Commission in Islamabad in the political section. And I should say that my first role in Delarue was dealing with Central Asia, so the, uh, the stands north of Iran. In 2015, I retired from Delarue, and after a bit of consultancy work, I was asked to join BICC. Now, this was about six months after the uh, implementation date of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So at that time, the signs were that British trade with Iran was going to be freed up, that there would be a lot more activity at the Chamber of Commerce, and that I would handle certain things. I would join as the Deputy Director General, and uh, I maintained that position for nearly two years. And then in March of last year, I um, stepped up on retirement of my predecessor. I stepped up to the role of Director General. So a background really in the kind of areas where the private sector and the public sector cross over, a lot of experience in Central Asia and Asia uh, and other parts of the world, and also a particular background in things like sanctions. Thanks for that, Paul. That's an interesting background you have. Let's continue on with British trade with Iran. 2017 figures suggest around 310 million US dollars in bilateral trade. 
Can you speak to the nature of British trade with Iran today and what we expect now with the US withdrawal from the nuclear agreement? Yeah, so um, I think your figures are 2017. In fact, the latest published figures by the Office of National Statistics were for quarter two 2018, sorry, the year ending quarter two 2018. And at that stage, the official figures were showing nearly 400 million pounds. Uh, And that was representing an increase of about 40% on the financial year ended quarter two 2017. So that was indicating uh, a really substantial increase in the level of trade once the JCPOA, the implementation date, kicked off and sanctions were formally lifted in the UK. Trade started to increase at at a low point in 2012-2013. It was about £80 million of exports to Iran. I can't remember what the import figures were, but £80 million in 2012 and 2013, thereabouts. And if you compare those to the high point of British exports to Iran, which was around about 2003, at that point, it was half half a billion pounds worth of exports. So as you can see, as soon as the sanctions reached their tightest point in 2012-2013, the exports dropped from a high of 500 million to uh, a low of 80 million. Then when the implementation date kicked in, they started rising again. Uh, you've listed a figure there. I've indicated that, in fact, in 2018, it was much higher. But I don't think we can assume, and we won't see the published figures until uh, probably the autumn of this year, showing the 12 months from end of quarter two 2018 to end of quarter two 2019. We can't assume that the uh, line on the graph was continuing to rise. In fact, I'm I'm fully anticipating a drop-off in trade. But at this stage, we just don't know what the level of drop-off will be. Will it go back to where it was dramatically dropping to 80 million in 2012-2013? Or will the decline be a little bit slower? So there you go. It's ups and downs. It's been very disappointing. I think that we haven't been able to get back at least to where we were in 2003. And I think we know the reasons primarily why that's been the case, but I'm sure we'll come on to those. We will indeed come on to that more a little later, Paul. For our listeners, of course, what we're referring to here is the May 2018 withdrawal by the Trump administration from the Iran nuclear deal, which has imposed a set of secondary sanctions on other nations trading with Iran, Britain and the EU included. Paul, perhaps you can explain a little bit about what secondary sanctions are and how they affect British business. Well, you quite rightly say that the US has reimposed sanctions. In fact, the US had always maintained a set of sanctions on Iran, and that was a set of sanctions that that the UK never imposed post the implementation date. So any British company, for instance, wanting to trade with Iran had to be really sensitive to some primary sanctions that were still in place on the US side. And these were notably three things. A British company could not sensibly, without upsetting the Americans or endangering, putting, putting in jeopardy its workers, it couldn't do three things. It couldn't trade in US dollars. It couldn't export goods that contained 
10% or more by value of American supplied components, and it couldn't engage in any transaction with Iran, an American citizen who would be personally liable. So any US citizen still trading with Iran, despite the lifting of the, some of the sanctions, was still not permitted to engage in trade with Iran. So that carried on. British companies had more or less uh, come to terms with that. So they traded in euros. Uh, they were very careful either not to include American components in what they were uh, selling to Iran, or they would uh, go out and seek permission from the American side, perhaps with a, a waiver from the Office for Foreign Asset Control. And then, you know, they were all very cautious about engaging American citizens in the exercise. So British companies had coped with that. But even bearing that in mind, there were still substantial difficulties. And the single biggest difficulty since the uh, lifting of UK sanctions has been that British banks, clearing banks, just have not wanted to handle transactions with Iran despite the UK's government's encouragement of trade with Iran. They have simply taken the position, we're just not going to take this risk. And I think that was uh, for a number of reasons. One was a number of banks had, of course, had a bumpy time in terms of getting caught by the US authorities in uh, money laundering exercises, not consciously, but failing to do due diligence. In other cases, European banks had traded with Iran at a time when the Americans were strictly against it. So Deutsche Bank and BNP Paribas both got heavily hammered. And this was a warning to British clearing banks. And despite the fact that the British government said it's okay to trade now, and despite the fact that some senior administrators from the Obama administration were trying to give reassurance, the banks simply didn't want to take that risk. And since the um, election of Donald Trump and the cranking up of sanctions, I can imagine there would be people inside the banks who would say, yes, we did the right thing. We weren't lulled into trade with uh, Iran during the Obama period. Uh, we were much more prudent in staying away from it. Otherwise, we would have been caught out by a backlash. And of course, in the past couple of days, um, there have been further media reports of Standard Chartered having been hit for a $1 billion fine precisely because of transactions with Iran. And the issue relating to Huawei and the detention of Huawei's chief financial officer all stem back to transactions with Iran. Now, some of these transactions related to the time when the stiffest tra uh, sanctions were on. But nevertheless, you can see there'll be a kind of a, a mood of concern. And that remains the case that despite the fact the British government is encouraging trade with Iran, the British clearing banks don't want to risk it. Well, what do you see as the longer term solution here then, Paul? Well, it, it depends, first of all, what we are considering the longer term. In the longer term, I suppose everybody hopes that tensions between Iran and the USA will subside. In the longer term, it has to be the, the key factor which will ease up trade again. But in the short to medium term, I think, is where the question lies. And uh, we know, for instance, that the British government has joined up with the French and German governments 
in establishing this uh, structure, this special purpose vehicle called Instex, which will be based in, in Paris, managed by a German. And the uh, board of the supervisory board will consist of senior diplomats from France, Germany and Britain. And the idea, I think, is, is yet to be fully explained to the commercial world. And there are activities underway to make that clearer to the commercial world. Uh, I know because we've been speaking to the UK um, government about this. But the idea, I think, links back really to systems of trading that were very innovative back in the 1920s and 30s, which meant that whilst goods and services could cross borders, so there could be exports from France, Germany or Britain or other countries to Iran and imports from Iran into other countries, money itself was not going to cross borders. Money would be basically uh, moved across the liabilities and assets ledgers of a single institution to uh, demonstrate who has earned money by exporting or who owes money by importing. And that would be one way of circulating monies to exporters and importers. Now, the question is, will there be banks who will be ready to accept transactions that are carried out in this way, even if the money can be shown not to have come directly from Iran, but be from various other monies held in Europe. And those are the kind of technical details that we're waiting to see explained to us. I think that the Instex organization is working on those processes now. And the, the statement from various governments is that it's going to take a number of months yet to operationalize the organization. So, you know, waiting to see what the short to medium term answer to this problem is. In the longer term, I think we all recognize that the only long term way forward uh, is probably going to be to, um, you know, to find solutions to this increased tension between the USA and Iran. Well, let's continue with the special purpose vehicle here, uh, Instex, which, as you noted, was set up by France, Germany and the UK. Though many in Tehran have been rather dismissive of its value in terms of trade, it's yet to really be tested. Can you explain a little bit about what Instex is and how it's going to work? I um I hear what you say from the you know the perspective of you know people in Tehran. I wouldn't be so dismissive of this development. I think that in that France, Germany and Britain have decided to go down this route very much contrary to the wishes of the current administration in Washington. I think this is a major development and they simply shouldn't dismiss out of hand at this stage the proposals to carry out trade through this mechanism. Um, I think it's far too early to to dismiss it. Uh, and I think that they're not taking into consideration the fact that this is being set up quite counter to US uh, wishes. Now, what happens, it will, let, let's talk a little bit about Instex's primary objective to begin with. They've quite rightly set themselves the objective in the first place of handling humanitarian transactions. Now, I think this is uh, you know, a very sensible uh, way forward. Humanitarian transactions must always be the first and foremost concern. And the, the, there are problems, no doubt, in the ability of British companies in the field of pharmaceuticals, healthcare, agritech, and so on, 
in exporting their goods to Iran because they can't get payment back. Now, this can't be good under any circumstances. But more to the point, humanitarian supplies have never been sanctioned throughout even the tightest period of sanctions on Iran. So there's no grounds for stopping those kind of transactions underway. There's also the fact that the uh, US administration has confirmed that there are broad exemptions for the supply of humanitarian goods to Iran. So it's not running counter to their express statements on this sort of subject area. The International Court of Justice, in its provisional judgment on the case that the Iranians requested them to review, which was that the new American sanctions were a breach of a long-standing treaty of amity between Iran and America, um, the International Court of Justice has not given its final judgment on that. But what it has said in its provisional judgment was that the US should do nothing to stop the supply of humanitarian goods. So all of these things add up to um, insects taking the right steps, getting the priorities right uh, by focusing on these things first. Now, if they can carry up these uh, transactions effectively, operationalize the system, find proper channels through which the money is paid to exporters from Europe, then it gives them the opportunity to exercise the mechanism and then to see uh, whether they can comfortably extend its use into other areas, into other non-controversial areas. The trade in humanitarian goods is a little clouded. Yes, humanitarian aid has not been under the sanctions regime, but the reality is if banks are unable or unwilling to finance those transactions, then that trade simply doesn't happen. We saw issues with this in the recent flooding in Iran in early 2019. Yes, I think when the US government announced that it was ready to supply humanitarian goods to, I think, the International Red Crescent in Iran, various commentators, I'm not sure whether it was the International Red Crescent uh, staff themselves, but certainly others commented, well, how do we carry out those uh, operations without breaching the sanctions? So, you know, there was a suggestion then from people who are much closer to the aid issue than I am, uh, that the US side may not have actually thought through um, how it was going to do this. And, you know, speaking to various people, there is a sense quite often that the US side has been taking steps without having thought them through from beginning to end, that there's rather kind of a knee-jerk set of reactions going on. You know, I'm not able to comment that closely on that sort of thing, and nor should I, because my interest is trade. But there's no doubt that in BICC's experience, when we have tried to speak to various banks, not just British banks, but other European banks, about their willingness to support transactions for the supply of pharmaceuticals or other humanitarian goods to Iran, they have quite frankly said no. So I see this as uh, quite likely to be part of the fallout uh, from not only the most recent uh, sanctions, but also the longer standing banking informal boycott on transactions with Iran. Right. Well, the other side of that, of course, is Iran's ability to sell oil. It is a key source of foreign income, and its ability to sell oil is being severely hampered by the United States. 
It's the US policy to drive Iran oil sales down to zero, even though waivers have been issued for countries like China, India, and Turkey, they're not guaranteed into the future. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we know that some countries still have waivers that uh, for the uh, purchase of Iranian oil. We know that the US has been talking about extending the waivers in some cases. And therefore, I would say that the, although clearly Iran's opportunities for the export of oil has been seriously hit by this new set of sanctions, I wouldn't say it's necessarily dead in the water uh, because we have seen no evidence that some of Iran's biggest oil customers um, have stopped buying. Quite to the contrary, they are requesting continued uh, opportunities to, um, to purchase from Iran. And even then, uh, even if the formal waivers were not given, you'd have to ask yourself whether there would be some companies, countries willing to uh, purchase oil from Iran or maybe to do oil swaps who, uh, who would be less phased, less worried by the threat of US sanctions. Okay, let's move our conversation to risks, Paul. What do you consider the key commercial and political risks of operating in Iran, and how might investors mitigate those? Well, I think foreign direct investment is clearly going to be on everybody's mind as a sort of area of concern while the current tensions continue. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to imagine serious companies putting investing hundreds of millions into Iran when they don't know immediately what the future in the medium term is going to bring. But in terms of straightforward transactions, um, I think that there are more opportunities. You know, exports to Iran in certain areas can still be affected. But the concern will be this, that as the oil sales do decline, Iran's ability to earn hard currency will, will drop off. The value of the rial, of course, will decline as well. We've seen it halve um, perhaps in a year. Uh, and that in turn makes it difficult to buy hard currency. So the big question for exporters to Iran is going to be, how do I get, you know, even if I can find a channel down which I can get paid, this could be Instex, how will the Iranians be able to pay me? Will they have the hard currency to settle their, settle their bills? Now, what the Iranians in turn have been doing is prioritizing various sectors for hard currency. And that means that if you are buying something in the pharmaceuticals and the agricultural area, anything to do with humanitarian goods and so on, the basic requirements of the country, they go to priority number one, whereas you know luxuries and so on uh, are simply not going to get the formal government approval for transactions and for hard currency to be sent abroad. So there's going to be a push and pull effect here. Is the exporter confident that their goods are going to get into the top category for payment in hard currency? And is the uh, government confident that uh, the goods being imported are worthy of being in that top category? And that is, I think, going to determine the precise areas for immediate interest in, in trade with Iran. And it brings us right back to the humanitarian stuff again. Well, it seems the humanitarian sector is really not straightforward at all, with trade in that sector continuing to be hampered. But let's uh, stick with the risks for now, and I want to bring up the IRGC, 
which of course is pervasive in many sectors of the economy in Iran. And given the nature of the security apparatus, how much consideration should investors pay to this issue? Notwithstanding the most recent designation, there has always been a set of entities and individuals who have been designated. And any British company coming to us for advice uh, is directed to consider whether they know exactly who owns the company uh, that they're trading with. And so doing what we call due diligence, other people are more careful and call it partner profiling, is very important. You need to be confident that the organization you're dealing with is not one of those that's sanctioned by the British government. For instance, you know, the British government treasury has a website, and on that website there is a list called the Consolidated Sanctions List, and that Consolidated Sanctions List includes the individuals and the entities which are sanctioned by the British government, and it covers for every country and just about every sanctioned uh, organization in the world. So you have to do your due diligence and a simple scan may not be good enough in the, in the current circumstances. It may be more important to do more due diligence given the circumstances are becoming more difficult. Risk goes up. So your effort has to increase. There are certainly com- companies who still think that trading with Iran is worthwhile and those who want to trade in the pharmaceutical areas or healthcare or whatever, still are committed to trade with Iran. Uh, and therefore, those those companies should just go that extra yard or two to make sure that the people they're dealing with are, you know, not sanctioned on, on uh, as far as the UK is concerned. That's, that's one thing. And then I have to go on to, I have to develop this and say that there are commercial considerations beyond sanctions. And that's this, that if you're company has an opportunity to trade with Iran, but currently trades with the United States, and the value of your trade with the United States is, let's say, five times that of your trade with Iran, you have to consider whether you want to take that risk. Because the American position, as expressed by a number of senior officials, has been in the first place, you can either trade with Iran or you can trade with America, but you can't trade with both. So the idea is there that if a company wants to deal with Iran, there will be circumstances in which the US is not going to stop that. But what they can stop is the ability of that company to continue trading with America. So that then becomes a pure commercial calculation. And a number of companies are making their decision based on that set of factors, rather than a concern that they're going to be hit hard by any extraterritorial sanctions. Clearly, there are a lot of pitfalls to navigate when it comes to doing business in Iran, and it would be up to each company to determine whether those risks are worth the return they may get from the market itself. Given the limited number of sectors in which it is somewhat easier to facilitate trade, how do you see the trade relationship developing and where do you see the opportunities over the next two to three years? Well, I think um, definitely, you know, the in, in terms of opportunities which are going to get priority, both from the Iranian side and from the European government side, and from the point of view of Instex, it again comes back to this question of pharmaceuticals, healthcare, agri-tech, supplying things like, you know, seeds, fertilizers, livestock hygiene, livestock health, and so on. 
And I think, you know, this is going to be an area of uh, prime concern. I think it'll be given priority by all sets of governments. And I think it'd be very difficult for the US to try and block it for all the reasons that I've already explained. I think, you know, we have to take things a step at a time. And that's the first set of steps. If the uh, European governments can start facilitating those, then it may give them courage to open up trade in other non-controversial items. Don't forget, there have always been, even in this post-JCPOA period, there have always been sanctions by the UK on things like materials relating to nuclear programs, defence equipment, or anything that could be used in the suppression of human rights. So those things have always been sanctioned. But there are a lot of things which have have not been sanctioned since the JCPO has come into effect. And those are just the sort of things that people will um, start to think, well, if we can can do transactions on pharmaceuticals, healthcare, and so on, what's the next in the next category below that prime importance that we can start looking at? You know, I don't know whether it's going to be something like clothing. Who knows what what it might be? But, you know, that will start to emerge as the two sides overcome the operational challenges of making Instex work. Great. Well, let's switch topics for a moment and move over to the relationship between Iran and its neighbor Iraq. President Rouhani paid a visit to Iraq just recently and was reportedly given a rare audience with Ayatollah Sistani. How do you characterize the Iran-Iraq relationship today and what do you see in terms of its economic value going into the future? Well, I wouldn't comment on, on, the, on the politics of the relationship between Iraq and Iran, other than to say the relationship between the two countries, notwithstanding the, the war that in, in relatively recent times, the relationship between the two countries has been so closely linked, it goes back thousands of years, two thousand, two and a half thousand years. And uh, that's, uh, that has a basis in culture and in religion. The primary shrines for Shia Islam are in Iraq. So we can see that this uh, relationship and this foundation goes back a very long time. It's hardly surprising that Iran would seek to have a close relationship with Iraq and vice versa. And um, I, I would say that you know, some people are making a, a, a bit of an issue out of this. I just don't think it's that surprising. I mean, <laughs> the the relationship between those two regions goes back somewhat longer than does the relationship between, say, Britain and Iraq or Britain and Iran. Well, just on that, let's uh, discuss the relationship between Britain and Iran. Of course, it's a relationship which has historical context. But moving forward, how do you see that relationship evolving post-Brexit? I think, I mean, this was this is a very interesting question, simply taken from the trade point of view. And, and again, you know, that is the Chamber of Commerce's interest is trade. If you look at the bilateral agreements that have been put in place by the Department for International Trade to facilitate uh, a continuation or continuity of British trade with uh, the rest of the world post-Brexit, you see that there's been a huge amount of effort has been put into setting up continuity arrangements with a large number of countries which with which Britain's had a long-term relationship, but they're not big countries in terms of the level of trade. You know, we're talking about places like uh, the Dominican Republic, 
the Faroe Isles, Suriname, these have all now got their continuity agreements in place. And of course, Iran is a much bigger potential market than, than any of those. Interestingly as well, I learned recently that the UK has a continuity trade agreement in place with now with the Palestinian Authority. So, you know, if if Britain is prepared to do continuity trade deals with those countries, scale will not be the reason why it would hold back from doing a deal with Iran. Clearly, how high up Iran is in the list of priorities for the UK will be determined not so much by the scale of its potential scale of its economy, which in comparison with these other countries is very attractive, you know, make it probably the largest single one with which we would have a continuity agreement. Uh, It will be, you know, the obstacle will be will be political. It's an interesting point you end on there about it being a political consideration. But what I want to speak about briefly now is your forthcoming book, Currencies in Conflict. There is some attention paid to the subject of economic sanctions in the text. Can you give us a brief overview of the nature of the book? The book is called Hostile Money, uh, Currencies in Conflict. And what it does is look back at the effect of conflicts and the effect of the military on currencies around the world. So I go right back to basically the, the Roman Empire and looked at what proportion of the national budgets were spent on keeping the military going. And I've looked at instances of coups in Latin America, which have been prompted by currency issues, the weakening of currency and so on. And of course, obviously, it's drawn on my experience in Delarue, where I traveled to places like Iraq and Afghanistan after the American-led invasions there to discuss currency issues and other issues with the central banks and so on. And and likewise in Bosnia after the Dayton Accords settled that country. So the latter chapters look at economic sanctions and their effect on monetary issues. uh, And that's very topical given Iran and Venezuela at the moment. And I've also looked in the very last chapter at the threat to our transactional systems of the vulnerability of the internet. So I think there are some parts in there which are, you know, continue to draw on my um, my present experience, but also tracking back over the experience I've had over the past 20 years with Delarue. Well, let's wind up on this last topic, Paul. The leverage the United States has in these extraterritorial sanctions stems largely from the fact that the global financial system is dollar-based. Countries like China have been using domestic currency to trade oil with Iran, and there has been increasing numbers of conversations around the idea of using domestic currencies between countries such as Russia, Iran, Turkey, and China. There's also the issue of cryptocurrencies. Where do you see the future for international finance in trade? Well, I think people have been talking about this for quite some time, and of course, in some communities in the European Union, one of the attractions of creating the euro was to uh, provide a counterbalance to the US dollar and to develop more currency independence, if you like. And in the fact that people have been trading in the euro rather than the rather than the dollar throughout the period of sanctions with Iran demonstrates that there have been steps in those directions. They are baby steps still. But you can imagine, and this is one of the um, one of the things I've looked at in my book. You can imagine that um, China is 
a key player in all this, partly because of the scale of U.S. debt that it holds. I think it's the, about the equivalent of three trillion uh, U.S. dollars in debt is currently held by uh, China. So they won't want to see the U.S. dollar lose its shine very quickly. But in the longer term, China and the strength of the renminbi and the strength of the Chinese economy generally will be a factor in alternative solutions. People have talked about, for instance, trying to make the IMF's special drawing rights uh, more of a functioning reserve. Well, I think a lot of people have found difficulties with that. But the idea of creating something that might be based on baskets of currencies so that you're not overwhelmingly exposed to political decisions by uh, one country or another might be a neat way of hedging in the long term. So yes, I think I think there will be changes, but they will be one step at a time. There won't be a sudden flip over where, you know, as with sterling, sterling one day is the strongest currency in the world. And then, you know, by 1925 or 1931, it's already uh, looking weak compared to the US dollar. So my guest again today has been Paul Wilson of the British Iranian Chamber of Commerce. And I'd like to thank Paul for taking the time to speak with me. If you found this conversation useful, stay tuned for the next interview. Bye for now.